Wouldn't it be great if you could earn the CEUs you need by listening to a podcast? Well, now you can. We have partnered with speechpathology.com to offer CEUs on select autism outreach podcasts like this one. Just head over to speechpathology.com and sign up to enjoy unlimited access for a full year for $99. That's unlimited 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses offered for ASHA CEUs, including live webinars, on-demand videos, audio, and text courses, plus select autism outreach podcasts for just $99 a year. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast. Just visit speechpathology.com and use promo code AUTISM at checkout. That's speechpathology.com, promo code AUTISM to get started today. I had a great time today talking with Emily Cohen. She is the founder of Tandem Speech Therapy, a pediatric speech therapy practice serving the Austin, Texas area. She has such a wealth of information about play-based speech therapy. We talked today all about following the child's lead. We also talk about why open-ended toys are so very important. And I shared with her some really fun therapy anecdotes that have happened to me recently with open-ended toys, meaning toys with no batteries. Why are we using so many toys that are electronic in nature? We talk all about the power of open-ended toys and how they can facilitate so much social interaction and play and language and communication. She talks all about strategies for picking toys out too. And we talk about interaction coming before language, such an important piece to the therapeutic puzzle. I'm really excited for you to listen to my conversation today with Emily. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 29 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin, and I am here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students. Today, we have with us Emily Cohen. Thanks so much for joining us, Emily. It's so nice to have you on. Thanks for having me today. And I feel like we've met so long ago because I don't know, we've just, you have a course on my site all about play and I love your book. I know you're going to talk about that, but I don't know, maybe we've known each other two years, two or three years. When did you start your business? Tandem Speech has been in business for four years. Yeah, it was just four years last month. Okay, so ABA Speech is four years in August. So we probably started this whole thing like, you know, online, this, that, and the other around the same time. That's why I feel like I've known you, you know, forever. (laughs) On that business trajectory. Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh, so fun. So I know what you do, a little bit about what you do, but I always love to ask this question because I always find out something new about my guests, which a lot of my guests have been friends uh, so far, all these 29 episodes. But can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey, your journey into being a speech therapist and all that great stuff? Yeah. So I have been an SLP for 12 years. And before um, going to graduate school, I was a special education teacher. 
and I worked in the public schools in Michigan, which is where I am originally from. I live in Austin, Texas now, and that's where my practice is based. And I, the public schools just weren't the right fit for me. And I really wanted to specialize. I wanted more one-on-one interaction with children and families. And so that's what led me to going back and getting my graduate degree in speech language pathology. And I have been super fortunate to work in a bunch of different private practice type settings. Um, My very first job out of graduate school when I did my CFY, I worked for a big outpatient hospital-based pediatric program in Michigan. And then I I moved to Texas. And eventually, after working for other people's private practices, decided to venture out on my own. Wow, that's so cool. I love that. It's nice to have a private... I mean, I have a small private practice. We're kind of growing it a little bit. We're offering some teletherapy services now and things like that. But it is nice after you've worked for other people and worked in different environments to kind of start your own thing and do things the way you think are going to help your clients and and all that. So I think that's really great. I love the topic that we're going to discuss today, which is which is all about play. Because I think it's so very important. And something that I think is kind of a bit of a mystery for parents and even practitioners. I do some professional business consulting, and one of the people that I talk with owns their own business. And they were saying, you know, it is an ABA clinic. And they were saying, you know, some of the one on one staff are, you know, kind of feel hesitant with play and how to facilitate language and, you know, am I doing this right? And, you know, I do a lot of home-based speech therapy for ABA speech and I talk to parents a lot. And I love being able to dialogue with parents like that. And just, you know, they have a lot of questions like, what should I be doing here? You know, the kid didn't play with this item the thought the, the way I thought they would. And so I know we're going to get into some of that because it can be overwhelming for providers and for parents as well. So I'm excited to um, delve into this, this area of play. So, you know, what the one question with us talking about play and speech and language development is, you know, how do children learn to play? Like, how do they learn that? I mean, children learn virtually everything by observing and watching us as the adults and the other people in their lives. And that's primarily how children learn language and then speech and those kind of speech-related motor skills and play too. So it all starts... I mean, I tell parents all the time, it starts like the moment your child is first put into your arms... They look up at you and that's the first moment of connection. That's the first moment of interaction. And that's the first moment of communication. And so kids learn so much by watching and listening to us. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And I think that's kind of where some parents struggle, you know, with autistic students is that sometimes they're it's hard to get them engaged. It's hard to work on some of those things. Right. So I know one of the things I've been working on with my clients is nonverbal imitation. So, you know, with play. So we have play items and I just made this reel about it this week on Instagram, but I had this chicken that was part of a game. I have three kids. So, you know, mm-hmm. our games don't have all the pieces. I'm not that mom that like keeps everything. Shocking, right? I, I, is it? I don't know. Very tight B at home, I guess. But anyway, had this chicken. And so we squeezed the chicken and then the child did it after me. And we were just working on kind of that joint attention, that imitation and, you know, those types of things. So if you have students that are kind of hard to engage, are there things that you work on like imitation or is that kind of the right path to take with students who might be hard to engage in those types of play items at first? 
Yeah, absolutely. That I, I love that you asked that because that um I'm working, I just started working with a brand new family who have a young child who's about 20 months old and he's not really producing a lot of sounds. And so of course he's not really saying any words. And we know at this stage he's he's definitely delayed. And so the very first thing that I talk to parents about is nonverbal imitation. And the thing that I always the game that I like to talk to parents about playing game in air quotes. So I tell families as most people have a mirror somewhere in their house, lots of people have a full length mirror. So I tell parents to sit on the floor, if they're comfortable sitting like that in front of the mirror and have their child sit with them in their lap. So both the child and the parent or caregiver are facing the mirror and then do all different kinds of like what I describe as like large body motions, put your arms up, touch your head, clap your hands. And then there are things that we know to do as therapists to kind of like scale the cueing up and down. So sometimes some kids might need hand over hand assistance. And the more we practice and work on this with them, often we can take away that support. And it also builds, you know, them working on following verbal commands as well, because you can pair that verbal, like put your arms up as you're showing your child as you raise your arms. So I love that. Yeah, imitation is so important. It is. Yeah, I talk about that as a, definitely a foundational skill for so many other things that you know, you're going to be learning. I was just talking to a group of parents yesterday that are in this kind of group for parents, autism parents, and um, I was doing a talk about embedding communication in the home. And so I was talking a lot about how this type of imitation is also this time of like joint and attention and doing an item or an activity together to like build that social piece, kind of what you're saying. Like, I've never tried that. I'm like taking all these notes. I'm like, oh, that's a really good idea. Because what I have found with my younger clients, you know, in my school-based position, I work with older students. In my home-based therapy and teletherapy, the students I work with are younger. So I feel like, and I don't know if I'm the only one, but when you're working with younger students, you never know what they're going to like want to play with or want in the moment. So so do you feel that way? Like I definitely have my data sheet. I definitely have, like I've just started this data sheet that has the words like nonverbal imitation, mm-hmm. joint attention, you know, requesting, maybe verbal imitation depends. And then I always write down if the kids say anything spontaneously. But And I have little activities under each of those kind of headings. But I feel like as a preschool therapist or even younger, I mean, you're working with really young um, children, that you have to be really flexible. Do you think that's something that's really kind of essential for this age group? Yeah. I mean, I think I think my speech therapist superpowers are being patient and flexible. I'm not sure Emily Cohen as the person outside of being an SLP has those superpowers. I wish she did. But yeah, I actually have um, a student intern this semester and this is her first time ever working with clients. We're working together via telepractice. And I talked to her a lot about being flexible, about over planning can sometimes help with that, especially when you're newly in your career. But I think one of the things that I've been fortunate to learn over the course of, of my career as an SLP, and I think one of the one of the places that I have extra training is from the Hannon Center, and I'm certified in their It Takes Two to Talk program. And I think for me specifically, that was really, really integral in kind of helping me build that foundation on how to turn any moment, whether it's play or an everyday activity, 
daily routines, whatever, into, you know, an opportunity for a parent to embed language learning into their child's day or the interaction that as a student and a teacher, you know, whatever the relationship might be, because we also know that kids have to learn language in context right? Language serves a purpose. It serves a function. It's to interact with the world. And we have to we have to teach kids in a functional way so that they can access that language, speech, communication skill when they're when they're in the moments without us as their teachers. Yeah, I think that's so great. And you know, I do a lot of parent coaching and parent training just about this, about being flexible and seeing the communication opportunity in the moment. And I definitely have, you know, I I am a BCBA, but I do use play-based approach. So I'm not sitting at a table with, you know, younger students. So it is more play-based, but I did have some of those early learner first cards. I was working with a student who was four and I was like, okay, you know, like, I know the student can label all these things. We haven't done it that way as like a flashcard task or anything like that. So the previous week I had brought a memory game. And so we were just like modified memory, just kind of matching the pictures, talking about it. And then the next week I bought like, you can get them at the dollar store. They're like first words, early learner cards. And it's like star and shoe. And so it was really cute. The kid, and this wasn't necessarily how I was going to do this task, but I held had the cards and the, the student was really motivated for them. So he saw them, he labeled the item. And then after he labeled it, he wanted that picture card. And then after he got the picture card, he put it on his family like table in the in the living room. And he kept saying game. It was like he had remembered the memory mm-hmm. game. It was re- the most interesting thing that he had made this correlation. So it was so cool because I was after the activity and this was, you know, a 10 minute thing. He kept wanting all the cards and I had a lot of cards. So <laughs> we did that. He, you know, he looked at it, he labeled it. I gave That's it to it. him. Yeah, it was really amazing. And then after he was kind of playing with the cards and making up his game, I was talking with the mom and doing some, you know, parent coaching, like, see, this isn't exactly how I thought this was going to go. But I had these items and look, he was able to label it. He wanted to request it as well. So it was kind of like this double duty way that he was functionally using his language mm-hmm. and he was making up his own little game with it. It was it was the most amazing thing. And, and I was trying to teach the mom like, you know, this is how you kind of have to be a detective to say like, wow, we just worked on labeling. We just worked on joint attention because we were in this shared activity together uh-huh. for 10 minutes. And he was requesting those things as well. And it was, it was so so cool. And she was so amazed because he had never really said those words before, like ever. Yeah, I mean, it's that idea, the the terminology the Hannon Center uses is following the child's lead, right? And I mean, I think that is, you know, a skill we learn over time as teachers and SLPs. And I, I coach parents in that all the time as well. You know, that's exactly what you were doing. That's what I do. And that's what we can, you know, help the parents that we work with too. It's because we know that when we when the child is actively engaged in the activity, no matter what kind of skill we're trying to teach them, it's just going to be so much more meaningful. They've made the choice to be there. And so that means they're more likely to want to stay right. doing that activity, stay in the interaction with that. And it's just like this virtuous cycle. Like the more, the more they're interested in it, the more they're going to engage with you because you're engaging in the thing that they want. And then the more opportunities we have as a teacher, so to speak, to support them. Yeah, I think that's so important. I talk to parents a lot. I mean, it ebbs and flows, but you know, some parents feel like, 
okay, I want my kid to sit and I want them to do flashcards and I want them to learn and this is how they're going to do it. And I, I just try to tell parents like, I can't make your child want to sit with me. I can't make them sit here and label whatever it is or, you know, fill in the blanks. It's like, I have to have all these motivating play items, these things they may potentially love and enjoy. And I need to be the reinforcer myself. You know, they, they right. need to be engaged and want to be there to be learning with me. And so I think as a young therapist, that's really kind of hard to wrap your brain around. Like, you're like, oh my gosh, I have IEPs. I need a progress report written. Like, I have to do Medicaid billing. I need to get... I have to write goals. I have to take data. Yeah, there's a lot of stressors. But I think when we come back to like just what you said about like following the child's lead, we obviously have a plan of maybe what we want to try to work on with the child or how we can embed communication. But I think sometimes we get so far from that because of the barriers of our work environments as far as getting the data points and having this to show and being nervous if the parents like, why are you not making them sit and do that task, you know? But I feel like I have flexed that muscle over time to be able to just how you eloquently put it, um, probably from Hannon because I haven't actually done any of that training, but I do think that's very interesting and definitely something that I subscribe to that method um, because that's really what you have to do, you know, with with this age group. So what, what ages do you see in your private practice? I'm curious because you said 20 month olds. That's, that's a, yeah. So I have seen in more recent times, you know, kids as young as like 15 and 18 months and it's doing a lot, a lot, a lot of parent coaching. And some of what I do as kind of, I do parent coaching outside of wearing my SLP hat. So sometimes there are just, I do like what I call like playing with purpose coaching, which goes along with my book. And so those are just for parents that are just interested in learning or maybe having some more support as they go through the material in the book and really and having somebody tailor that application of how they can turn it into their life with their child. And but yeah, definitely, I'm seeing more and more families with children 18 to 24 months looking for support, sometimes getting ECI services and sometimes just going the private therapy route. And then I also work with school age kids who have speech sound and phonological impairments as well. But, you know, play and parent coaching is where my passion and my heart are. That's awesome because I think parents at that age just, I think it's always good to be in touch with a speech therapist, to be honest. I mean, there's just so much you can do to supplement, you know, your child's development and, you know, every child, whether they have a delay or they don't, they get frustrated when they're little and they're trying to communicate. And I know that can be really hard. So if you have, uh, if there are parents or professionals that are listening, they're like, oh, this sounds so great. Like I would love to incorporate play more into my therapy. What are some tips that you have for choosing toys for students? So my number one tip for parents and students and other therapists across the board, always, 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 is to try to stay away from toys that have batteries. So the way I like to explain it to parents is when we're interacting with a toy in our child where the toy has batteries and does lots of like really cool flashy sounds and lights and has all the bells and whistles. Even if your child is like pushing the button or hitting a hammer or turning a switch on and off, most of the thing that's doing the work is the toy, not your child. And the function of play is learning for kids. And learning is what helps them build all those connections in their brain. And building those connections is what helps them grow. 
And so we want as much as possible for the kids to be doing the work. So the follow-up to skipping the batteries is I I tell parents to also think back to the basics. So, and I'm going to have to tailor my advice as the the parents that I work with get older as I get older. I always tell people, think about the toys you played with as a child. Like I definitely didn't have battery operated toys being an 80s baby. And so blocks, cars, some kind of toy house with people or action figures, what we would describe in the therapy world as open-ended toys. Those are going to be the most beneficial in terms of learning and supporting your child's development. So open-ended toys are toys that don't have a beginning or an end. And there are so many different ways. There's not a specific start and stop where like a board game has a very specific start and stop and it has rules and a routine and something like Legos, for example, you can do thousands of things with them. Okay. Those are some good ideas. Yes. I, I I love that. I actually, I was with a client the other day and I had some Shopkins. I don't know if you know what those are, but my mm-hmm. daughters like them. They're like these miniature little yeah. objects, which are super fun for a lot of reasons. And for some reason, there was a shoe in there. It was like a doll shoe or something because there's always like something in the toys that shouldn't be there because, you know, my kids are kind of messy and I just take stuff like from our basement, right? Anything can be a therapy material. Yeah. So there was this shoe that was like kind of like a doll shoe. And so, you know, I I was working with a kid and we were kind of going through the Shopkins looking at them. And I was, we were doing some following one step directions like, oh, give this one to mommy. Look, it's a cupcake. Can you give that to sister and stuff Mm -hmm. like that? And then we got this shoe out. It was the coolest thing. There's a kid with newly diagnosed with autism, um, doesn't really, he does talk some, but not, not a whole lot of joint attention or social reciprocity. Mm -hmm. And he took the shoe and he tried to put it on his face. Foot. Oh, that's it so cute. was the cutest thing I've ever seen. And because he's so tiny, he could get it on his toe. Oh. I was just like, this is why I'm a therapist. It was the cutest yes. thing I've ever seen. And then after he tried to put it on his foot and decided that it was not his shoe, he tried to put it on my foot. <laughs> It was so cute. And then he tried to put it on his sister's shoe uh, foot. But I was like, this is kind of like this open-ended idea of kind of facilitating that. And it was just this little toy shoe, but we had this five-minute really nice exchange. And, And I think that's hard for parents because just like I know you're on social media some and so am I. It's like back to, you know, you celebrate Hanukkah, Christmas, whatever it is. You know, the toys that are getting a lot of the the play on on marketing are definitely probably battery operated toys, right? Yeah. So so it's good to get back to the basics for a whole lot of reasons, right? Do you think yeah. that those also facilitate more pretend play and more yeah. open-ended kind of is that yeah. okay. Yeah, and I think also like that I I think the idea of less is more is really valuable. Like we there's tons of information out there about toy rotations and kind of reducing the stimulus, but in a way where your child still has opportunity and lots of things to interact with, but isn't overwhelmed by it. And we know that that can support kids with building longer sustained attention, which is certainly an important life skill, whether that's, you know, from a traditional school perspective or as adults, like attention is very important. And so I talk, and and there are lots of other strategies that, you know, we teach parents to kind of help them pare down the environment sometimes to, to, you know, kind of, there are things we can do to kind of facilitate and curate the environment in a way that's still really functional and fun for kids. 
but um, might support their learning. I love that. I feel like we could have a whole business based on, I love that, curating the environment because it's so true. Can you please come to my basement and curate my basement? Because I think, I think I need you. I think I need, I think I need you up here in Ohio. But that idea of a toy rotation, I am bad about that. I have tried that with books where, you know, it's the idea of, you know, you don't have every single book. If somebody's listening, they're like, what are you talking about, Emily and Rose? So a rotation would just be like with my book rotation that I doing with my own children is, you know, we have books out and I might have them on my nightstand because that's kind of where I read to the kids Mm -hmm. in my own bedroom. But, you know, we don't have every single book out that we own, right? It's like a rotation. I do. And with the holidays, my kids are getting a little bit older now, but when they were really little, it was like, okay, it's Halloween. We celebrate pretty traditional holidays. So, okay, let's get those books out. And then as they've gotten older and now they're in sports, you know, we might be reading the Halloween books like on Halloween day or like the day after, but it still counts, right? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Okay. So those are some good ideas for what toys to, to pick. I love that. So talk to me a little bit about interaction comes before language. I know that a lot of just working with more younger students has kind of brought me back to the idea of you know, parents are very worried. They're very worried about their child's development. And, you know, I feel like they feel overwhelmed. They're just not sure. Like, you know, because I do work with a lot of kids with autism, they're, you know, and there's no crystal ball, right? We don't know how delayed somebody's language is going to be and how, you know, their language is going to be when they get older. And, you know, we, we wish we could tell parents all those things. But talk to me a little bit about this idea of interaction coming before language, because I think that's so important. Yeah. So really, the purpose of communication, the purpose of language is to interact. We use it to interact, right? Language is language and communication are social. And you've mentioned this this a few times already um, while we've been talking, the idea of social reciprocity. So if somebody's listening and doesn't know what that means, I just I, I describe that, I call that a back and forth exchange. There's a really cool video that is from the Harvard Center on the Developing Child. I might be getting that name wrong, but if you Google Harvard Serve and Return, there's a really great video that's super parent-friendly that explains it. So if you think of serve and return like tennis, it's that back and forth, like the ball going back and forth across the net. And that's what we're doing when we're communicating. And we have to build that back and forth interaction We have to establish that connection and that routine with kids before we can anticipate them communicating with us in any way. And certainly, I think you probably experience this more working with autistic children than I do because that's not really my specialty area. Sometimes finding that that thing that hooks them, that interest is really, really, really difficult. And And it just ties back, like, right, it's all related. It just goes back to that idea of following the child's lead and how can we create opportunities for kids to communicate when we find the thing that hooks them in that haven't existed before. It's kind of that idea of curating the environment or what we can do as the adult supporting the child to kind of encourage communication or encourage language to be built when it's not already happening on its own. But you know, the idea of joint attention, we certainly talk about eye contact less so now than we have in the past as it being a really important skill. But 
when we're talking about imitation, somebody, a child looking at you to know what to do, it can be useful in facilitating imitation. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to look you right in the eye or look at your face. But all of those are the precursors to communication in language and that interaction, that foundation of that back and forth, that social reciprocity is what we have to, what we have to build and everything else comes from there. Yeah, I think that's so good to point out because I I know that just talking with a lot of parents, they they feel nervous is how they describe it to me. You know, like, is my child going to start communicating? And I just always go back to talking about joint attention. I try to inform them about what that is, you know, and show them throughout the session, like, see, that's exactly what we were doing there. We were doing this activity together. You know, they were asking for the cards or they wanted the Shopkins or whatever it is. But I think that anytime you're working with younger students, you know, if you're new to working with younger students, it can be hard to to see all those different opportunities that can happen. And I definitely think as you become a more seasoned therapist, you're like, oh, that was, you know, we were just working on all these skills all in one. So I think it's good just to start using that language and trying to, to tell parents, like, these are the things that you can work on. So do you do that in your private practice to like give parents some ideas on how they can work? on some of these activities in the home environment. Yeah, absolutely. So, and even, you know, I've been, I've been doing telepractice now since March of 2020 and um, possibly in the fall of 2021, I'm going to go back to seeing some of my clients in person, but even with telepractice and doing parent coaching and, you know, speech therapy for early childhood in a more traditional sense. I'm still doing all of that. I got this super awesome idea from a friend of mine in Austin who's a physical therapist that was also doing telepractice. So what I do a lot with the families I work with with young kids is have the parents wear earbuds of some kind and play on the floor or play wherever they're going to play or interact. If it's snack time in the kitchen, wherever they might be with their child and, you know, turn the camera so that I can see what they're doing, but they don't necessarily have to see me. And I kind of, I talk about, it's like being like a news anchor. It's like that idea of being a bug in the ear so that I can coach the parents like in the moment, just as just as I would have done if I had been in their home. And then in their home, I might have kind of what you were just to go back to what you were saying. You know, it's like as therapists, we model, but then we also want to talk and explain to parents what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think I do think it is important to use those kinds of terms like joint attention so that if someone else says it to a parent or a doctor or a teacher or somebody, you know, that they know what it is and can also and are familiar with that terminology in case it comes up. It's so cool that you brought that example up because I actually saw someone talk at a conference once and it was um, different. It was an adult in a store who had autism and he was navigating the store on his own to get needed items. And there was somebody he had earbuds in and they were giving him direction and helping to coach him. But I was actually thinking about doing just what you said. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I haven't seen if you've put that on Instagram, but I have some professional consultations I'm doing and it's for students with autism. And I was thinking of that too, because these are a little bit older students. So I don't want to talk about the students in front of the students. And I was thinking to myself, how can I communicate that? And I was thinking back to that session. And now that you said this, I think I might move towards that because I do think that I want to coach the people like, so in the moment, they can try some strategies and do some things, but you know, we're not going to be talking about the student in front of the student but I can coach. That's mm-hmm. so cool that you're doing that. So you've had some good feedback from Yeah, that. parents have really liked it. I've even thought about doing it with my intern. 
so that because, you know, it's like um, in telepractice, I feel like it's different teaching a student who's working on her degree in speech language pathology than when we were sitting at the same table. It's like a little bit easier to be like, hey, why don't you try this? Or let me show you how I might have done this one thing differently. And then the student has the opportunity to try it. And so currently, I've just been sending little chat messages to my student to give her kind of like tips and things like that. But as you were talking about it with, you know, an older autistic person in the store, which I love that's like, I love that kind of expansion or cohesion of this like idea into so many different applications. Um, I was like, Oh, I could do that with my intern too. <laughs> and I would have never thought of that. See, there we go. Oh my goodness. I love having a podcast. This is so fun to be able to network. Um, that's really great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And if you're out, if you're listening and you're like, okay, how do I... I know Emily's going to talk about a couple links that she is going to share with us. But one of the links that we're going to put in the show notes is for my Autism IEP Goal Bank. Because I think sometimes these concepts you know, can be hard to understand how to goal set, especially for early learners, especially for yeah. autistic students. So make sure you look at the show notes because I will have that listed. I always love to end our show with uh, one kind of question here. Um, What is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals about communication? Oh, wow. I think that the... I think the thing that I would like to encourage parents or remind them about is that they are their child's best teacher in every moment that they interact with their child is an opportunity to support their communication and language learning. And so that it, it, I just tell parents, like, if you are hoping that your child is going to talk or communicate outwardly with the world, then you have to talk and communicate with them because they learn through example, they learn, you know, by watching us and seeing how we interact with the world. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's, you are your child's best teacher. Absolutely. I love that. So where can people find out about you and your work? Yeah. So my practice in Austin is called Tandem Speech Therapy. So in most places on social media, you can find me at Tandem Speech. If you're interested in learning more about my book, which is called Playing With Purpose, um, you can find that at pwpbook.com. Dot com, and that's where you can order it or get it for yourself. Um, it's available as an ebook. You can also get it in print um, if that is your style. And anything else that relates to that will be on that pwpbook.com website. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Make sure to check the show notes for resources we discussed today. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.